Good morning again. If you've, um, so if you've got your Bibles, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. That's where we're going to be. And um, I'm going to read the first 16 verses here in just a minute. I'll, I'll set it up this way. So here, here's the deal. The Rangers won this week. That's big. That's big. That's fun. And you got an extra hour of sleep last night. In theory. And we're talking about sex today. And so that's a great Sunday. The kind of Sunday only the Cowboys could mess up, all right? So uh, I'm going to try my best to do my part. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And let me say a couple of things, in, if I can put it into context. We have to keep this in mind when we read 1 Corinthians 7 because the church has, we've been, the church can be weird. Is it, can we agree on that? Sometimes the church can be really weird, particularly on subjects that the Bible addresses that make us uncomfortable. We get weird about it, all right? The other thing is, there have been, through the history of the church, a, a lot of people that want to try to make 1 Corinthians 7 say more than what it's saying. Paul is going to be answering some specific questions that we don't exactly know what the specific questions are, although we can guess. Um, but, but Paul's just answering some questions. He's not trying to say everything there is to say about sex and marriage and divorce and singlehood. He's not, he's not trying to do that. He's got some specific things that he's saying. But he's not trying to say everything. And that's important for us to remember. The other thing is, and I, I want to, uh, this I think helps us know. Because Paul's going to say some stuff and you're going to be like, wait a minute. I don't know that I like Paul anymore. All right? And, and, and so I want to balance some of what you will hear this morning with what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 4. So by way of introduction... Um, this is 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. And I've got it up here. You don't have to turn there if you don't, if you don't want to. He, he says this, and he's writing to Timothy. Timothy's the pastor in Ephesus. And uh, there was some people that were going around, and they were, teaching, um, they were teaching this heresy, essentially. They were teaching things that don't line up with the Christian faith. And so Paul addresses that. He says this. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in lighter times... Some will, and notice how he says it, they'll depart from the faith, which means what we're talking about now, what they're talking about, that's not Christianity anymore. They're going to depart from the faith by devoting themselves, and then notice, to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. He's not pulling any punches. Verse 2, he goes even further. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. And you're like... What in the world are these people teaching? What in the world could they be teaching that would, that would cause Paul to react so, so vehemently against these people? Well, notice in verse 3, this is what they were doing. They were forbidding marriage and the sexual relationship that goes with marriage. And 
They require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. And here's what they were doing. They were going around and they were trying to say that things that God had made, that God had designed, that God had in all of his perfection spoken a word and brought into being that those things were off limits or they were bad or they were to be shunned because they were part of the, you know, material world. Paul says, no, no, no. That's the teaching of demons. Good food, we should enjoy that. In fact, specifically they were saying, shouldn't marry and have sex and you shouldn't eat meat. And so, um, you know, don't be a vegetarian or whatever. I don't, I don't say that. Paul says that. So I'm just kidding. You can be a vegan or whatever. I know, and those are different, vegan and vegetarian. I don't know what the difference is, but I know they are. Somebody's going to email me later. So, so you see what I'm saying? Paul saying, look, God created things and it was good. Yes, sin has come, it's corrupted us, it's corrupted the world and the whole world system. Yes, this is true. Sin is, is, uh, reigns in so many people's lives and, and, and over uh, the world and the, and the earth. Romans 8 groans, you know, longs for the day that the sons of God are redeemed. He, all of this is true and yet we don't say all this stuff is bad. We want to receive what it is that God's created. So, that's Paul. That's what he believes. And so now I want to read 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm going to read the first 16 verses, and then I'm going to pray desperately for God's help to, to, get, to get into this. Verse, or chapter 7, verse 1. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote. Now, just real quick. It's a change here. Paul, we're shifting gears. Before this, Paul has been addressing in the first six, first six chapters things he heard reported to him about the silliness going on in Corinth. Some people saw some of the silly nonsense that the Corinthian church was engaged in. They came back, they reported it to Paul. That's the first six chapters. And so he was going to respond. There's going to be rebuke and some harsh words. Here, Chapter 7, now Paul is moving to, hey, Corinthians, you wrote me a letter. You asked me some questions. Now I'm responding to those questions. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. It is good for a man to not have sexual relations with a woman. Not Paul's words, it's the Corinthians' words. You wrote this, now I'm going to respond to it. But... Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another. 
except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish all were as I am myself, but each has his own gift from God one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried or the, or the widower and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? If you would, would you bow with me? Father, I pray that you would help us this morning. I pray you'd help me. The words that come out of my mouth, Father, you'd protect them and you would uh, protect the ears of the hearers this morning. And so, if something comes out of my mouth that does not accord with your word, I pray that it would burn up and be forgotten. So, Father, help us to see what you have said through the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians. And then, Father, help us with eyes opened by your Spirit to be able to apply that to our lives, our hearts, and our minds. And so we ask this the only way that we can, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by your Spirit. Amen. All right. Well, so let, uh, in, reading, did, in reading that, I know some of you were chuckling. Under, you're like, I wonder what he's going to do with that. I don't know. All right, we'll see. Let's see how it goes. Um, here's, a, here's one thing. We only have half the conversation. Paul is answering some questions that we don't, we don't have the letter the Corinthians wrote to Paul. So it's like listening to one side of a telephone conversation. You know, when you're a little kid and, you, and your mom, she was talking on the phone and you only heard her side. And so you're trying to imagine, you can pick up, I mean, you, you can pick up the gist of it. You, you know, hey, that's probably what they're talking about. But we're not hearing the other side of the conversation. That's the first thing to know about this. 
Secondly, in, in verse 1 there, it's not good for a man, or, or it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's not Paul's statement. That's what the Corinthians were writing. So let me explain this to you. Somewhere along the line, now remember, there are these factions in the Corinthian church. There are people that were saying, we follow Paul, and another group said, we follow Apollos. Another group says, we follow Peter, even though we've never met him. Then there was this group that's like, we, we're, we're Jesus-only people. You know, I mean, th- th- there are all these factions. There is a group, we saw it last week in verse 6, that somehow they got the idea that because um, uh, the, there's sin in the world and that our um, bodies, you know, are wasting away, that what happens with the body doesn't matter, only what happens with the spirit or the soul. That's all that matters. So the body is, um, you know, you'd call this the pagan view or the, uh, you know, the worldly view. That the body is just a, 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 a makeup, an amalgamation of a bunch of hungers and urges that need to be satisfied. No big deal. If you're hungry, you eat. If you're thirsty, you drink. If you feel sexy, you sex. That kind of a thing. And it's just the body. It doesn't matter. Because the body's going to be gone. Paul says, no, you're crazy. God's going to resurrect the body. And not only that, you live in a body. And not only that, your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. So what you do with your body matters. Don't say stuff like that. Here, there are people, another faction, that somehow they were like, hey, Paul, we're all with you, man. The body matters, all that stuff. In fact, we're so with you, we really think, we really think you ought to do everything you can aesthetically, um, piously, spiritually to deny your body every single desire or want or need that it has. And so we're big into fasting. And we're big into not having sex. And people were saying, well, okay, that's cool. You can do what you want. But we're married, okay? And they were saying, no, no, no. Christians, even if you're married, you shouldn't have sex. Because sex is bad. Right? It causes problems. Right? It's, it's dirty. I mean, I get it. It's a necessary evil. We got to make kids. They got to come from somewhere. So you can do it for that. But otherwise, it should be off limits. In fact, really what you should try to attain to is, is celibacy. You should try to attain to um, uh, ridding and denying every sexual desire you have. This is what they were, they were saying. And so Paul is coming along, and here's what makes the chapter hard for us to read, is that he does not wholly disagree with the advantages of celibacy. 
He just doesn't buy their reasons for it. Okay? Paul's going to say, look at verse 7 with me real quick again. He says, I wish that all were as I am myself. Well, what's that? Single. Celibate. But notice what he says. But, so I wish everybody was like me. I wish everybody was celibate. I wish everyone was free from sexual desire. Think Paul says, because hey, I think that'd be easier. I understand what, I mean, it creates all these things, and he'll talk about some of them later. I wish everybody was free from that, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another, presumably meaning the lack of sexual desire, celibacy, um, you know, a call to singlehood, that's a gift from God, as is sexual desire and marriage and intimacy. Each one has their gift. I wish everybody had the gift I had. I mean, that's what he's saying. I like my gift. My gift seems less complicated. But I know that's not how it goes. That's not what God's done. So, so you see, this is, I, Paul's like, I, I get it, celibacy. I, I, mean, I, I get it. If you had no sexual desire, that's, there are things not complicated about that. But the reasons you're talking about it, I don't agree with. This is what Paul's saying. Now, let's go back up to two. And he says, look, uh, two. But because of sexual, uh, uh, the temptation to sexual immorality, which means I know most people have sexual desire. I know you do. So don't create problems in your marriage related to sexual desire when marriage has the mechanism and means built into it. All right. Now, notice his language. Each man... Do I have verse 2 up here? Okay. Each man should have. That's a command. It's going to have three commands in this. Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Should have her own husband. That's what's implied. Now, I don't think what Paul is trying to say here is that if you're single, you need to go out and find uh, somebody to marry. I don't think he wouldn't say that, but... I, that's not what he's saying right here. The, the language that he's using, that should have language. Should have. And notice, men and women are both being addressed. This is, there is equality from Paul's eyes, total equality in marriage, total equality in the, in the marriage bed. This is not one over the other. This is both he's addressing. And that should have language there means enjoy the sexual relationship of your spouse with your spouse. That's what should have means. He's talking to married people. He's telling them they ought to continue with the sexual relationship. The word means to hold on to or to don't let go or to take possession of it to the fullest and in the deepest sense. That's what should have means there. 
Now, in verse 3, he gives another command. He says the husband should give. So, should have. Now, should give to his wife her conjugal rights. And likewise, the wife should give conjugal rights to her husband. What he means there. And should give. So, should have means hold on to, don't let go, take possession of it in the fullest sense. Should give means to give freely, to hand over, to surrender. Paul is saying here that, listen, sex and marriage is not just permitted. It's not just some necessary evil. It's a command. The having and the giving and the giving and the having of two people who have made a covenant relationship with each other and now are one flesh. It's a command, he says. It is designed by God. It is created by God. The giving and the having. So let's think about this for just one second. Are you, are you still with me? All right. <laughs> Gets really quiet when you talk about sex. And I don't know if you fell asleep or, or what. Here, here's the deal. Because it's weird, right? Sex is one of those weird things, particularly when we talk about it in church. Everybody's like, I can't believe he's talking about that. And I'm like, I know, I can't believe I'm preaching Corinthians. Um, so, so here's the thing. On the one hand, you had the ascetics that said, you know, look, they're Puritans, that, um, the, the prudes, you know, the sex is bad, we shouldn't do it, and it's scandalous, really. You know, on the other hand, you have people in the world, and they're saying, Look, food for the stomach, stomach for the food. You know, it's just a desire. You satisfy the desire when it comes. And, and, and not much has changed since Paul wrote this letter. There's still kind of this two prevailing views. But I want you to catch a glimpse that when Paul's using this language, should have and should give, he's not subscribing to either of the views. Not the pagan view. Not the puritanical view. He's giving us a vision of, of something that's different, something that's more, and something that is thoroughly biblical, by the way. This might come as a surprise to you, but the Bible is very pro sex, totally pro sex. Right in the middle of the Bible, in the Old Testament, right in the middle of it, is the Song of Solomon. It is the celebration of sexual love. Proverbs 5, 18 and 19. And this is just a sample. There's much more in Proverbs about it. Where the, the, the men are commanded, husbands are commanded to be filled with delight and intoxicated with their wives. He's speaking sexually there. Genesis chapter 2, when, when God creates Eve and brings, wakes Adam up, and, 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 and he's like, whoa, man, uh, and that's where we got the name woman from. And you don't know. All right, so, but I mean, I, listen, I, I want to, 
I'm just trying to let you see this because we're so weird about all this. But God says they were naked and unashamed. It's not that God thought, oh man, I don't know. I should probably find a robe to put on her or something. I, I, God wasn't worried about that. That's how he created it. And, and it implies, and, and, we, and we look at it, and God said, I want you to know intimacy. I want you to know vulnerability. I want you to know that in the midst of intimacy and vulnerability, what it means to be totally secure at the same time. We long for that. It's part of the eternity that was set in our heart. We are long because we were created for a relationship with God. We are the image bearers of God. Of course we long for that. And so when God creates man and woman and puts them together, the idea is that they would be naked and unashamed and vulnerable and secure. And that they would enjoy each other. Because God designed that. And then in the midst of all the pro-sex that's going on in the Bible, God steps in and uses the same language to say, look, this covenant relationship between a man and a woman that includes a sexual relationship is meant to point you somewhere. It is meant to inform you about something. And you know what that something is? The relationship I desire for you to have with me. Because I am the groom. I'm the husband. And he says to Israel, you're my bride. And Hosea chapter 1 and 2 and 3 is this picture that God says of he's he's the God who loves he is a lover who chases down his unfaithful wife and says in Hosea 2 oh I wish I could take you into the wilderness and woo you all over again and we read that and we feel weird about it and God doesn't feel weird about it he created you to know intimacy with him I mean Something vastly different than the intimacy we share in a marriage. But it is meant to point us to that intimacy. So this becomes now an echo or a signpost or something that's, that's saying, okay, this way. In the New Testament, Christ is the, is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. In Ephesians chapter 5, so, Husbands, or wives this, and husbands that. And he says, but I'm really talking about Christ in the church, and I want you to get it. Should have, hold on to it, possess it, take hold of it. Know it deeply. Should give. Give yourself vulnerably, unreservedly, have and give, have. He wants us, he commands us in marriage not to look at this as something that's bad or, or dirty or something that should be denied in marriage. No, he addresses that in 1 Timothy chapter 4. That's the teaching of demons. 
No, no, no. We, we above all people, believers, should experience this. Now, in all that, the joy and the security and the vulnerability and the delight, all of that that's, that's bound up is meant to point us to a greater joy and a greater vulnerability and greater security and greater delight that comes with intimacy with God. And so what we see is this is an echo. It's, you know, it's a sign, but it points us there. And, and, and when we see it that way, then the sexual relationship really is something that's like bread and water compared to the feast that awaits us. Albeit, it's good bread. Fancy water, right? But it's just bread and water. There's a feast that awaits us when we are face-to-face with God. So, God's built this in. He's given us language. He's created a signpost for us. We can, you know, it's like the first fruits of this eternity of intimacy that we will have. And, and what happens is, the problem is, some people, the, the, the pagan problem is, this is a destination, not something that points us forward. And so what they do is they get to it and they think, okay, all my problems will be solved if I can just have great chemistry with somebody and everything fires. That's the only problem. Married people believe that. Single people believe that. That's all I need. I'm unhappy because I don't have this and it hasn't been the perfect wow for me. And if I just had the perfect wow, that's all I need to fight about it in marriage. If you're single, you're seeking it out. And it's like, that's not what God created that for. You're trying to camp out at the rest area and say, oh, this is home. This is what I was created for. I was created for a smelly rest area. No, no, no. It's just a sign. It's pointing you somewhere else. So, Paul says, you should have, you should take possession of it, drink deeply of it. You should give vulnerability and and unreservedly. And then he says in verse 4, for the wife doesn't have authority over her own body, the husband does. Likewise, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. This is is the vulnerability. I'm giving myself, this is covenant relationship. Covenant relationship says, I'm giving you my whole self, my mind, my heart, my body, everything, all it, it's all yours. And in covenant, you give your whole self. Incurring or bearing the sacrifice that that means. The alternative to a covenant is a consumer relationship. That says, I'm in this for me, and I am out for it to cost me the least that it can possibly cost me. And unfortunately, that is how most relationships operate. Relationships between men and women, or husbands and wives, or people and their church. I mean, that's, it's all consumer. I want the most I can get out of this for it to cost me the least. And God says, no, that's not covenant should have, should give. 
And when, and when, and when that happens, man, we begin to experience and catch echoes and, and look at the signposts and move to look forward. If we misuse that, like he talked about in chapter 6, you know, sexual immorality, pornea, sex outside of marriage, rather than giving us the echoes of what trust is and vulnerability is and security is, it has this diminishing return. It means, no, we trust less. We feel secure less. We are vulnerable less. Don't do that, he says. All right. Verse 5, do not deprive each other. That's the third command. Should have, should give, don't deprive. Except perhaps, and, and then this is the, the exception he makes, for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Self-control is the issue. And he says in verse 6, it's a concession, not a command. I don't command that. I mean, in 25 years of ministry and marriage counseling, I've never had a couple that presented and said, you know, we have a prayer problem. We just, I don't know, I think we pray too much. That hadn't happened. Paul said, look, I, 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 if you feel like you need to do that, then okay, fine. But I, I'm not even commanding that. He doesn't see any reason why there should be extended periods of time for that to not happen in marriage. All right. Uh, Because because Satan will tempt you. Temptation, by the way, just so you know, it's always a test of your faith. Not just your self-control. Temptation comes the Thief wants to steal and kill and destroy. He wants to take your future away. He wants to take your family away. He wants to to rock and unravel your faith. That's what he's doing. Don't ever trade some immediate thing. Don't give up what is most important and enduring in your life. For some moment of thrill. Don't, that's crazy. Don't do that. That's what Paul said. All right, verse 7 celibacy is Paul's gift, he, his lack of sexual desire. He wished everybody has it, not everybody does have it. So now he's going to address verse 8 and 9 to the unmarried and the widows. Very likely the word for unmarried there is the word, is he, he's pointing to widowers. So either way, to the unmarried, to the widowers and the widows, it is good for them to remain single as I am. Which is why I take Paul to be a man who is a widower. He's grouping himself here. Just like I am. But, if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, this is where I want to remind you. Paul is not telling us everything there is to tell us about marriage. He's not telling us everything there is to, to, to know about being single or celibate. or he, He's not giving us everything. He's answering a question. Paul, 
in celibacy better than anything else? Paul says, well, I don't know. I think so, but that's my gift. But I reject all the reasons you think it is. Because sexual desire is a reality. There's no reason to be burned up with it. All right? That's eight and nine. And I'll have to say more about that next week, you'll see. Uh, verse 10, real quick. I'm out of time. All right. Real quick. You need to know three things, and I'll make them fast. To the married. I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. Here's what he's saying. Jesus taught about this. You can go to Mark chapter 10, begin in verse 5, go to verse 12. Jesus taught this. That's what he's saying. And here's what Jesus taught. Don't get divorced. Or to say it another way, do not divorce. Or to say it another way, divorce. Don't do it. Don't get divorced. Some of you are trying to use this, you know, pursuit of spirituality for a reason to get rid of the spouse you don't like. And so they were saying something like, well, you know, I don't know, I've, I've just really, um, really grown spiritually past all this marriage nonsense. And so I think it would be better if I'm not married and just be single. And Paul says, no. No. And he draws upon the teaching of Jesus. And people's like, well, yeah, and Paul doesn't give any exceptions here to the divorce clause. You know, and Jesus gave exceptions. Paul doesn't, Because Paul's not trying to ultimately answer the, the questions Jesus was asking. He's not telling us everything about it. He's just saying, Jesus taught about this. Go look it up. Matthew chapter 10. Don't get divorced. Now, verse 12. Real quick, to the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. Here's what that simply means. In verse 10, he says, the Lord taught about this. Mark chapter 10, verses 5 through 12, go look it up. He says, don't get divorced. Now, here in verse 12, I'm now talking to the rest of the people. Who are the rest? He goes on to say, they are people who find themselves married to unbelievers. They were married, somebody got saved, means now they're married to an unbeliever. And I'm saying this, not the Lord, because I looked through the Gospels and Jesus didn't teach on this. So now I'm having to apply biblical principles to a new and complex situation. That's what he's saying. And what I'm telling you in this new and complex situation, an unbeliever find, or a believer finds himself married to an unbeliever, don't leave them. It's no reason to be divorced. I know people are telling you, oh, well, that'll make you unclean. That'll make your children unclean. No, it doesn't. In fact, it's just the opposite. You don't have to worry about them polluting your faith. You don't have to worry about them making you unclean somehow or bringing the world into your home. Maybe they're going to try to do it, but let me tell you something. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and their proximity to you actually doesn't contaminate you. It makes them holy. Doesn't mean it saves them. That's not what he's trying to say. 
He's just saying it brings them, they have a front row seat now. They have a backstage pass to the activity of God in your life as he pours out his grace upon you because you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, he said in chapter 6. They're not going to contaminate you. Don't worry about that. Just the opposite. They're now closer than they ever thought they would be or want to be to the activity of God. And not only that, I think bound up in all of this, you are one flesh with them and you belong to the Lord. You, you are one with God. They, they don't even know how close they are. I mean, in, in some ways, I don't mean this funny, I don't, but in some ways, in, in Paul's mind, to take some of the physical things, you know, when your unbelieving husband kisses you, He's kissed the entire trinity in some ways. So no, don't leave. And don't make him want to leave. You know, stay. Try to make it work. Now he's, he's practical. Like, look, if they leave, they leave. I, I get that. I'm sorry. Grieve it. Do all that you can to keep that from happening. But it's not a failing on you. It's not, you know, no scarlet letter, nothing like that. It happens. Because we're called to live in peace. How do you know? That through you, your wife, wife won't be saved. How do you know that your husband won't be saved through you? How do you know? Because God's in the business of pouring out grace. Paul's setting before us a high view of the grace of God at, at work, in our marriages, in our families, in our relationships. And, and he doesn't want those people and their nonsense to in any way threaten the good that God has for us. Now, you might be sitting here this morning and think, well, I'm totally frustrated. Ross, you didn't address the things that I'm, the questions I have or the things I'm struggling with or the disappointments. No, I didn't. Two things I'd say. One, that we're not done with the chapter. Come, Please come back next week. There's more to say. And I can't say it all. I can't say this much, really. Children's people are going to be so mad at me. But, but I have more to say because Paul has more to say. And at the same time, for every single one of us, there will be questions that we want to ask the text that Paul didn't answer. And that's okay, too. And we'll talk about that next week. I trust, as we said at the beginning of the service, God would draw you to himself. We could look through the temporary, the problems, the burdens, the, the disappointments into all that he's called us and prepared for us. Trust that he's doing that with you this morning. If you would, would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, help us. We 
we want to see you more clearly. And, and so I pray, Father, that your spirit would take your word, not my words, but Father, your word, and minister that to us and bring understanding to us and draw us to your son, Jesus, who we desperately long for. We ask this in his name and by the Spirit. Amen.